Will you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12? That's where we'll be this morning. We're spending several weeks uh, looking at um, some central gospel principles and imagining and realizing how dangerous it can be if, if we only have half of the principle down. Um, because you want to be balanced in life. Uh, the other day I was carrying, I, I filled up a gas can. And I actually I filled up two gas cans. And I was carrying them off over to the shed. And they were not light. You know, they were, they were fairly heavy. But I would have preferred to carry them both together than one by itself. Have you ever carried a bucket of, a real heavy bucket of water on just one side? That lack of balance is more tedious than carrying twice the weight and being balanced. Balance is, is what we want. We want to hold on to both sides together. Young kids in the room may not remember this, but we used to have things in the playground that we called seesaws. <laughs> Apparently they were dangerous, like everything else. That was fun. All fun is dangerous. Uh, but... <laughs> They actually were kind of dangerous. You now I think about it, you remember, you'd be on the seesaw and you'd be real high up and your best friend would just get off <laughs> and then laugh at you, you know, and you'd, no, oh, man, that's not funny, you'd say. But it was funny. But that, that's balance. That's balance, right? Or have you ever eaten at a picnic table and you're on the bench and you're on one end of the bench just eating away and the other person says, I'm going to get up and go get some more dessert and they get up and the bench goes. That's Balance. It's what we're talking about. We want to hold the whole truth. We don't, we, want, we don't want to hold ruggedly to half truth and be wildly out of balance. And so last week we looked at one idea of the kingdom. This morning we're going to look at a, a, the church, actually. This morning the question that we're going to walk together on is what does it mean that this is my church? Or how do, I'm not speaking myself, it's for you, how do you view your connection with the assembly here? How do you belong and or in what ways does this belong to you? That's what we're going to seek to pursue the whole truth in today. And we're in 1 Corinthians 12. We spent a lot of time this year on Corinth, so I won't go into uh, too much background on it, except to say that the church of Corinth was, a fair, was known for being out of balance. So it was regularly letting go of one thing to hold too tightly to another. And, and Paul's speaking this word into a church that's struggling for balance. And he's going to talk about the church with the metaphor of physiology, so... Uh, well, let's start, and, and you'll see soon enough. Let's look at verse 12. Paul writes <clears throat> about the church, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. He's saying here the body is one even though it's made up of many parts. 
Yet, despite the fact that it's made up of many parts, which, you know, Paul understands church just like we understand church. It's made up of many nearly autonomous parts. Seemingly autonomous parts. Paul says, despite that, it views itself as one. It's described by its unity in the whole. This, the complex whole, okay, which actually is very difficult to actually see. The, the idea of the larger whole, I mean, it's a metaphysical idea. This complex whole rules in the minds of the lesser finite parts. That's what he's saying. Say it a little more simply, the all-important we, which is the church, reigns in the hearts of the lesser important me's in the church. You and me together, we identify, we gain our identity in the whole and not in the part. We see, uh, I think we see this intuitively. We know when we see this well. We can smell when somebody has this right. We just feel it. If you ever see a team, a coach and a team, and they're being interviewed after the big game, you know if this is true. You know, so after a big defeat where they have the microphone in the coach's face, and, and if this coach says, well, you know, I tell you, uh, I tell you the offense was just terrible today. They didn't run any of the plays I called. Uh, you know, they just, I don't know what they're doing this year. That is very different from a coach who would say, you know, well, I think there's a lot of places we all need to work. Like, I can think of places I need to work, and we're going to get together, we're going to work this. You hear all the we's in that? It's not accusatory. It's sort of this failure happened to all of us. Or if you hear it in the positive sense, you know, they got the microphone in the face of a quarterback after a huge victory, and they want to know his secret to success. You know it when you hear it, when a quarterback says, well, I just got to tell you, like, the offensive line played out of their minds today. And I just, I just was blessed to be behind those guys. And when you look at special teams, special teams really gave us a chance to even win this game. They kept, they kept the ball in our position. When you hear somebody selflessly placing themselves with the we, that's what, it, that's what he's talking about. He's saying that is the unity of the church. The individual parts gain their identity in their collective whole. And he ends it with pretty remarkably with this phrase. So it is with Christ. Now that, I mean, some part of me wants to say, Paul, you're being a little bit sloppy there. It's the church. I mean, that's a pretty big title he's putting on the notion of church. There's many people, I think, in Christianity who have a high, high view and a high doctrine on Jesus Christ and a comparatively low doctrine on the church, which is stressed by this very line here. Paul might say, what's the difference? So it is with Christ. Look at the very beginning of 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That's what he's describing here. 
is we've been we have a consecrated unity, which we call church, which he calls Christ. Now, 13b begins to show you some of the things that this unity has overcome. So 13a, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and then he says Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So he's pointing to the kind of diversities at the time in their setting that typically mattered outside the walls or in regular life. It mattered if you were a Jew. It mattered if you were a Greek. It mattered if the framework of culture really cared if you were slave or free. Paul's saying, not here. Doesn't matter. It does not matter because we have drank from the same spiritual cup. We've been united through Christ, is what he's saying. There are all sorts of diversities outside the wall of the church that seem to matter. But here, Paul, these things don't matter. I'll use a game analogy one more time. You ever been to a, uh, I always think of football when I think of like a great game. It's just uh, where you're in the stands and your team makes a big score, right? A big touchdown. And you're surrounded by like strangers. All around you are strangers. Most of whom for the past hour you have not liked. Okay? Because of their, their language or they spilled their beer on you or whatever. But when the touchdown happens everyone's up and you're hugging the jerk that you just thought bad things about and you're like missing the high five with the person under you and you're, there's this grand unity that rises because, now this is an emotional, this is kind of a thin description of the deep reality church. This is, the onset of this is emotional and it's just an experience. But it touches on what he's saying, which is there's a greater thing that we share which makes all of the differences not really matter. These lesser differences don't matter. Now, 12 and 13, I feel like there's real depth in those two verses. There's a lot to be said there. There's just a lot of weight in them. But Paul's going to go on in 14 and following to begin to work out the differences inside of the church that do matter. So there are some differences that don't matter. There's some differences that matter out there, but they come in here... and that just don't matter. They don't play here. But there are differences that exist in the church that he's going to help us reconcile. Look at 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, he's not talking about many by way of quantity. He's talking about many by way of variety. He's saying the body doesn't consist of one kind of person, but of many kinds of people. In other words, the unity of the body is not marked out by uniformity, but by multiplicity. We have our unity, but it's not because we are alike each other. That's what he's saying. 
man-made unity tends most often to be a unity of uniformity. That's not how the it's not how God has gained it in the church. He did not he did not gain unity by making us all the same. Rather, we're all different and Christ has unified us. In the world typically we unify through uniformity. You know, birds of a feather flock together. We sort of we all live in the same place, we go the same way, and that's how we sort of make it through the day. I didn't intend for that to rhyme. I was free. That's sort of how it works. And he adds to that, look at 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would, make, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So the unity that is in Christ, the church, is not a uniformity. It is actually a multiplicity. And the difference between you and me, the differences between one another, have, do not uninvite somebody or do not say to you, because you're different, you should not be here. Our differences are not differences of, of quality. They have no bearing on our belonging. I find it interesting, by the way, that he uses body parts in this description. Because earlier he started, he actually named a couple kinds of differences. Jew, Greek, slave, free. I think those name differences don't matter. They're the sorts of things that in the church wash out. What I think he's talking about is the real differences that do matter. And he's saying, your difference coming into the fellowship is not deselecting you because this is not supposed to be a uniform church. Look at 17 and 18. He, he's continuing to develop this. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose. In other words, the diversity, the inherent diversity of the body, because it's not uniform, so the inherent diversity of the body is actually through God's intention. God has designed the church so that the parts are different and not the same. In fact, if we were the same, it would be deformity. This is what he says in 19 and 20. Look, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. What Paul's saying is, is that uniformity of the parts would be the deformity of the body. It would be the demise of the very life of the church. This is... Well, this initial description, I would say, uh, we can hear this expressed in a lot, of, a lot of companies, a lot of institutions, a lot of leadership conferences you go to. You'll hear these things. You'll hear, 
You'll hear someone say, we're better together than we are apart, or you'll hear a team has a lot of different positions. What position do you play on our team? Or you'll hear someone talk about the fresh perspectives that come from diversity. All of those things are well and good. I don't have any reason to disagree with them. They're right here, sort of in the text of Scripture. The only difference is, is we're not done yet. And it goes on. Because 21 shakes things up a bit. Here's what Paul says. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, first of all, this is strange and a little bit alarming. Who would say to their one of their body parts, you know, I have no need of you? I think the answer is, is nobody would say that. Uh, nobody who understood their, the purpose of their body parts would ever say that. So for someone to even say that, it's almost it's a rhetorical question. He's saying something that really, if somebody understood themselves, they'd never say. In verses 15 and 16... There's been a pivot here. In verses 15 and 16, what you have is a person who's not sure he belongs. So he says, the foot shouldn't say to the hand, you know, because I'm not a hand, I have no place here. That's a person saying, I don't belong here. And he's saying, don't worry, you do belong here. Verse 21 is a person saying, you don't belong here. And he's challenging this thought also. Even more unusual than the first statement is what comes in 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The weaker parts are essential. Just think about that. You know, everybody espouses diversity But we always assume when we're talking diversity that we're still talking about quality. Every team knows they want a quarterback and they want a kicker, but every team is trying to get a good quarterback and a good kicker. That's not what it's talking about here. He just said, there are parts of the body that to you will be seemingly weak. but they're not what they seem. And it's not that, let's just be clear about what he's not saying. He's not saying that you're going to look out and see a member of the body that's going to appear to you to be seemingly weak. And it's not that the Holy Spirit's going to sit on your shoulder and go, yeah, but one day they'll have something to contribute. That's not what it says here. Or that the Holy Spirit is somehow going to try to convince you that they have a gift and you just really need to pour into it. And if you can mind that gift, then there'll be a benefit to the body. That's not what it's saying here. What it's saying here is, is you see no value in them, but they are essential to the body. Indispensable to the body. The body of Christ is not like an organization. The body of Christ abides weakness as though it was indispensable. 23 and 24 build on this. 
And on those parts, he's talking about the weaker parts, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts we treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. The member of the body that brings dishonor, comparable dishonor to the body. What do we do with it? I'm talking about, just get real for a second. I'm talking about the person that makes you cringe. Like, they're here today. What do you, that person who by comparison to you, weak. By comparison to you, dishonorable. By comparison to you, not useful. By comparison to you, a disappointment. That person, what what does God say we do to this person? We clothe them with honor, is what he says. We come around them. We, <clears throat> through extra effort, insulate them in the body because they're indispensable to us. That's what he says we do. We treat them with great care as though they're fragile and yet indispensable to the body. That's what, we, that's what he says we do. He says the parts that by comparison have honor, right? The mature parts, the parts that have it together, the parts that are high functioning, the parts that understand effects, effectiveness and efficiency and how to get the, all of those parts that don't need help, he says that's fine. They don't need to get the help. They give the help. Christ's body labors to bring honor and noble presentation to the lesser parts. Why? Well, I don't know precisely, meaning I can't look and understand exactly what God's doing all the time, but I do have a strong sense that it's anchored in the reality that God, in your weakness and in your dishonor, God rescued you. It's If the church is Christ, then it should behave in, a, in the same nature as Christ. And this is not how Jesus treated us. Jesus didn't look on us and say, well, I am comparably more honorable and I really have no need of them, so I'm not going to rescue them. He didn't do that. But rather, rather, despite our weakness and despite our dishonor, the Lord laid in and, and showed us honor and clothed us with his righteousness. And in the same way, my, my senses, my, my, my hunch is that the only way for the church to truly understand the fullness of the gospel is not to know it, but to live it. Live it out by how we treat those among us who, by comparison, were like us before Christ. In other words, to a church that admires only things that are strong and useful, they are no longer a church. 
They are anathema. And God has no place there. Rather, to a church that sees weakness and comes around it, like Christ came around us, you know, the saying of Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. They see the essential nature of when weakness is present, God's power resides. Now, 25 and 26 tell us the reason for all of this. What's the end of all of this? And, And here's the end. The end is that there'd be no divisions in the body and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The goal of this kind of living is the distribution of love, right? So in this unity, there's great diversity, but through this spirit of unity, the uniformity that does exist is the uniformity of experience. Everyone feels loved. Everyone has dignity. Everyone is reminded that God came for them. That's what this unity is offering. It's as though the blood of Christ is what's, what's giving life to all of the members. And so we're joined together. Now, this picture, verses 12 to 20, is what I'm going to call for today the whole truth. This is, I think, a good whole picture of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself, you might say. And so it's in light of this whole that I want to just take a second and I want us to look at different halves. What if we just were to live in half of this truth? But not have the whole truth. What harm might come? And so, you know, you could cut a pie a hundred different ways. So I'm just picking two halves. I'm sure there's others. But here's the first half, the first dangerous half gospel here. is a person who, who believes that they belong to the body but their, their phrase, this is my church, is just a little too possessive. Like it's my church. Okay? I would call this the heresy of overpossession. Someone who's so certain that this is their church, but they're actually a little too certain. It's actually their church. Where the body exists for the benefit of the part. Where the whole body lives to serve the eye or the ear or the foot. That's, that's what I'm talking about. A person like this is just trying to help you diagnose. And by the way, you might find that you live, you have a little bit of this half gospel and a little bit of this half gospel, and somehow you still don't end up with a whole gospel. Like I find I'm all over the map on some of these. But a person like this typically exhibits a desire to control the environment of the church because it's theirs in a subtle way. They want to make sure it looks just right because they want it to feel right when they walk in it. My wife and I, every night, we quibble over the thermostat. And we quibble over one degree, uh, strangely. She believes the house should be 73 degrees, and I believe it should be 72 degrees. And it is a nightly quandary. Last person in bed gets to pick. And then you're like, ah. So, you know, there's this thought of maybe I can get up. And 
We're going to set, she and I are going to choose to set the environment of the whole house over what we think is best. Now, that liberty is at some level available to us because it is our house. This is not your house, right? This is God's house. But a person who sort of thinks it's their church a little too much starts to exert the pressure of control. This environmental control tends towards an inclination towards uniformity. Invariably, someone who likes to possess the church has in mind a church that looks like them. They undervalue the things they don't get. To them, they seem weak, and they do not realize that they're indispensable. They do not realize that the very life of the church is hanging on the very things that they can't value because it's their church. In fact, the messiness that's inherent with a church that abides weakness is a total mystery to a person who thinks it's their church. They want things to work. Someone who thinks it's their church oftentimes begins to think that special care should be afforded not to the dishonorable people or the dishonorable parts or the parts that make you cringe, but rather to the honorable people. Their tendency might be to to tell you how long they've been here or uh, how much they've done. Their tendency is to elevate the honorable for recognition rather than the true whole truth of Christ which leverages the honorable to clothe the less honorable with righteousness. Of course there are mature in the church. God's given mature to the church for the church. Has not given the church to the mature. This is one half. A person who's absolutely sure they're a part of the body of Christ, but get confused that it's not their body. Here's the other half. I would say it falls under the phrase, I go here, but it's not really my church. And I might call this, if that first one was the heresy of ownership, this is the heresy of isolation or the heresy of autonomy, which is I go to that church, but it's not really my church. This person enjoys the distance afforded in their autonomy where they can go to church and gain, but they're always far enough at a distance that the church cannot reach and take. This person believes that church is an event on the calendar, something that you go to and that you leave. But Paul called it Christ. This person may enjoy the friendliness of the church, but is often cautious of genuine friendship in the church because friendship means responsibility. Friendship means when things don't go well with you, I'm now connected to it. This person might remain at a distance because of shame, because they look in and they see maybe the church is a little too uniform, right? Uniformity of the church 
is a turnoff to people who aren't like it. But there are, might also be a person who, if it's a perfectly good church, they, because of their own shame, they're thinking, I don't belong here, right? The first half was someone who's convinced they belong here. The second half is someone who's not convinced they belong here. And they think, once I'm in, then people will know who I really am. And when they find out that I'm the weaker vessel, I will be dishonored. And I don't know how to, I assume you're in the room today. <laughs> I assume this person's here, this kind of person's here. And I don't know what to say except I'm fairly certain that every sin that has taken place under the sun is, has happened to people in this church. Like, I, you don't know what I know. At this point, I feel unsurprisable. And everybody here dresses up and smiles because we want to worship God. And I, as best I can think, nobody here is really thinking about you. We're just trying to make our way through life. You should know that. Your sin is not a noxious turnoff. Or maybe to say it a better way, right? I hope our sin, our, all of our sin is a turnoff to the Lord, but you are not a noxious turnoff to the church. The church is supposed to be messy. And in fact, if you feel weaker, you may be what makes Christ here indispensable. A person might be this way because of fear of conviction. The more I come, the more I'm opening myself up to the Holy Spirit. Either way, whether you come and you're convinced it's your place a little too much, or you come and you're convinced it's not your place a little too much, I, I, what I'm here to say is Christ's blood, right? We share the same cup, and Christ's blood is what unifies us for his glory. It's my prayer that you would say, this is my church.